I mean, I, I just wanted to propose, like, let's take 20, 30 seconds to just sit with our bodies, even though we see each other. But if you wanted to propose something else. No, sitting and breathing is good. Hi, this is Simone, or Simon, and I am joined, and I'm so very excited to be joined, by sci-fi writer Nalo Hopkinson. You know Nalo from the short stories that she published in the many collections that came out, or her novels, or the graphic novel that she recently worked on. I first met Nalo Hopkinson in the summer of 2019 at a writing workshop in the Netherlands. And she came to the Netherlands with her partner, David, all the way from California. And we did body painting. We had nights in the backyard of where we were staying, full of conversation. But of course, Nalo also gave a writing workshop, which she called feeding the hungry ghosts. Now ghosts are the spirits of deceased people. And there's many different ways of how spirits or ghosts work depending on the culture and the narratives you're surrounded by. But something that's quite common to ghosts is that if you want them to speak to you, you have to feed them. Well, what ghosts miss is sensation and embodiment. Now, Nalo argues that the reader will live in your story, but they do this through their head, through reading. They're in their own head, experiencing your story in an embodied way, or they want to be fed in an embodied way. So with Feeding the Hungry Ghosts, Nalo reminds the writer to think about the body, to think about sensations, and letting the story be a sensation. I hope that for you listening to this conversation will also give you a sensorial experience. Um, anyway, I had a lot of fun talking to Nalo Hopkinson again. It was also great to see her again. And if you hear us talking about Delaney or Octavia, then we are talking about the legendary sci-fi writers Samuel R. Delaney and Octavia Butler. Since Nalo Hopkinson has known or knows both writers, I'm saying knows and has known because Octavia Butler unfortunately has passed, Samuel R. Delaney has been her mentor and is luckily still alive. And these sci-fi writers um, are known for the way that they write about queer sexuality, the way they write sci-fi uh, from racialized subjects. Um, and these are, of course, aspects you will see, you will recognize as um, Nalo is part of this lineage and legacy. 
Enjoy. So I've actually been thinking about you a lot um, during the COVID-19 pandemic um, because I remember your experience uh, reading sci-fi or any sort of fiction that involves the apocalypse. Um, there would always be the question of where are the disabled folks? Where are the black people? And I've been wondering how you have been living through this pandemic um, and whether you feel that with the current moment, on the one hand, you see, of course, disabled people are at the front of some of the voices that we hear and at the same time, also not at all. Mm -hmm. um, same with Black people and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, this, yeah. this interesting or painful tension, maybe. Yes, quite quite painful, um, in one or two places quite hopeful, um, because in the middle of the, the despair and the worry for people on the front lines of the, of the protesting, um, I remember reading that this is one of the largest civil rights actions the world has seen, hmm. which is not something I thought I would see in my lifetime. Um, that people would be putting their bodies on the line alongside black people, um, that other people would be. Um, so there's that, but there's also this moment of, there's a couple of things, and one is reading apocalyptic fiction, uh, particularly if you think in terms of um, uh, Aboriginal peoples, in terms of, of uh, African descended peoples, um, you hear people talking about the apocalypse and you want to see, well, which apocalypse? Because for us, that started a few centuries ago. We're living mm. in it right now. Um, but then on top of it, add you know the pandemic and the, the, the current uh, murders at the hands of police and the, um, you know, those are ongoing. Those have not stopped and have been going forever in the US and in Canada. Um, so there's this, 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 there's this one long wail in my mind of haven't you been listening to us? And us as you know, environmentalists, environmental scientists, science fiction writers, you know, people who actually do some of this research at one level or another who have known this kind of things coming down the pipe. Um, uh, this, this anger that our governments aren't listening to us. Um, and I live in um, a country that feels like there has been a dedicated program um, since the at least the early 20th century to de-educate America. Mm. Um, and so you have people believing in saying things like, you know, China grew this in a lab somewhere, people throwing acid on, on Chinese looking people, um, yelling, go back home. Um, so we took a moment, we took one class and we just talked about that and the protests and their feelings, many of them, that they weren't doing enough. Um, mm. And uh, also reminding some of them I knew were graduating uh, and I was hearing, oh, I don't feel like I can celebrate. And reminding them that that's what we're fighting for. Anybody is the right to celebrate. So they should damn well acknowledge that they mm. made it through these four years. Uh, and they, they're doing so in a really painful time and they should celebrate. Yeah. Um, so that's what that's been like. And trying to write in the middle of it has been interesting. 
Have you felt like have you found a way to celebrate? Because I'm also thinking, for example, right now, pride going on in the Netherlands or in Europe and like trying to find ways to come together, um, but also trying to find ways not to come together to protect health. Right. Like this is such a weird. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, weird time. So Toronto Pride, which is where I would usually find myself over the, over the summer, got canceled. So that's a lot of community. I'm living in an isolated, uh, if you're from Toronto, Riverside seems like a small town. Um, so couldn't, Toronto Pride is not happening. Toronto Carabana, there's an annual Caribbean festival um, that is like the Toronto version of Carnival, so it's a little tiny Carnival, not happening. Um, mm. And uh, if you do any kind of um, non-monogamous or, or, or poly, um, but your sweeties are elsewhere, the, that's that loss of connection as well. Um, it's been bad. On the other hand, I have a stable job of tenure. Mm. I have uh, a much better income than I ever thought I would. I was able to you know, get the apartment supplied with food and necessities. Um, I'm not doing, neither one of us has, uh, we're, not, we're not having the kinds of, of difficulties that a lot of people all around us are. Mm. Yeah, and I, I'm just re reminded of um, a conversation that Toshi Reagan had, uh, that, you know, Toshi Reagan. Um, and uh, she was talking, they were talking about the, the parable of the sower and how the parable of the sower by Octavia Butler uh, was an inspiration actually for Toshi to prepare for the apocalypse. And Toshi really talked about like having maps at home and having offline communication strategies. Is that... Do you ever look at, at fiction like that or apocalyptic fiction in a sense that it prepares you for a moment like this? I wish I didn't have to. And um, Octavia was from down the street at Pasadena, which is very close mm. to here. And in fact, the last public event I attended before lockdown was Toshi's um, folk opera of Parable of the Sower at uh, UC Los Angeles. Um, yes and no. I mean... It's not a definite memory because my memory is bad, but I sort of think I heard Octavia once say that if the things that happen in her novels come to pass, people haven't been listening. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would read her work and get very scared and very depressed at first, and then I'd reread it and find the hope in it. Um, so I don't have anything as, as uh, well thought out as maps, mm. but we've been talking about stuff like that in this household and we have some plans um i guess in some ways fiction is a roadmap for how to deal with bits of life you haven't experienced or or to get some confirmation for bits of life you have hmm. so yes i just wish it didn't have to be that novel I mean, mm. literally, we're living, we're living along the route that that uh, in California uh, that yeah. Lauren would have taken. Yes, in the first parable book. Yeah. yeah. 
So in a way, we should be glad that she didn't finish the third novel mm. if it's like a future vision, right? Like, <laughs> well, the third novel, she planned it to take uh, take them into space and take them to um, off-world, take them to another planet. So maybe that would have been nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would that have been have, of, being, of your liking? Do you think? <laughs> I... I don't know because I kind of feel wherever you go, there you are. So yeah. we, unless we fix, learn to fix what we're doing here, we'll just export the problems along with us and try to destroy another world. Um, yeah, and so one of the things I remember talking to my students about is like, well, you might feel like this thing that you're studying right now, the creative writing, science fiction, is is lightweight. Hmm. But it is one of the ways that we actually get to talk about survival, really. Um, and to talk about what it's like being in the space. Um, we we learn empathy through fiction. Um, art that, you know, in this part of the world where art is considered a frill, art is the thing that gives you a way to look forwards or to look mm. to one side or the other and see each other. Yeah. Well, when you say forwards, it also reminds me of looking at time. Um, at one hand, of course, thinking about Tijana, if I say it correct, uh, you from your first novel, Brown Girl in the Ring, uh, like this, this overlap of time, like having a gift, having second sight. Mm -hmm. So like one time, future time merging with a current time and also thinking about a something that you described when we met each other at Camp Cushy in Eindhoven. Uh, when you came to, to teach a workshop, um, you talked about the image of Sankova. Mm -hmm. uh, Go back and looking Exactly. Yeah. And a more yeah. circular kind of time. Um, and I'm sort of bringing this together with something that you said at the beginning when you said, well, I mean, this is not the apocalypse, right? Like we've, we've seen this before. Mm -hmm. For many people in many positions, mm -hmm. we've seen this before. Um, yes. When you talk in terms of time and Tijan being able to, to be in, in one time and another, she's also experiencing liminal time. She's experiencing um, the time and place that is of the imagination and of belief and of faith um, uh, and, and of non-consensual reality. Hmm. <laughs> Um, Say more of that? Non-consensual. Non-consensual. Well, it's, it's, it's because it's different for everyone. Um, and so in the genre fiction world, we're supposed to divide science fiction and fantasy very neatly, where science fiction is about you know, technology in the future and fantasy is about um, belief systems and folklore and, um, and magic and that kind of stuff. But... I see them as being part of a continuum, or at least you know they, they're they're very um, implicated in each other. Mm. Uh, both talk about the problem of labor, and science fiction tries to solve it with technology. Fantasy tries to solve it with magic or older technologies, um, but we have never really solved the problem of the fact that 
life is hard work and we devolve that hard work onto people who don't pay enough to do it. <laughs> mm. uh, and science fiction tries to make robots to do it, but once the robot is complicated enough to actually look after a human being, it's pretty much a being itself. Um, uh, fantasy tries to do so with magic, but the same thing happens. If you think about uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice um, and what happens when that magic goes awry because the sorcerer hasn't bothered to, he's been keeping secrets from his apprentice. Uh, and of course it goes awry. Um, this, this apprentice is just trying to find a way to not be so tired at the end of the day. Mm. He has committed no crime. Um, so what was I saying? Time and the, the idea that fantasy is unreal. The people who crit criticize fantasy say that it's because there are no rules. Well, there's always an internal logic to uh, a strongly written piece of fantasy. Um, so there are rules, but they're going to be different for each piece. And when you talk about liminal time, liminal space, you don't know what you're going to find in there. You don't know if the laws of physics are going to work. You don't know if, you know, if all of a sudden wolves will be speaking. You have no idea. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's the reality that we cannot agree upon, <laughs> but that nevertheless is real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Have you, have you read um, Becoming Human by Zakia Jackson? Ah, it's on, I'm about to buy it. Payday is this weekend. I'm about to buy it. It's literally <laughs> on my... <laughs> you should get it. You're in it. I know. <laughs> they should send it to you. <laughs> well, I can I can support them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, no, I was just the the reason that I mentioned it besides just to flatter you that there's a chapter on your work in there, um, the sense of things it's called, which immediately speaks to this liminal time um, or this non-consensual reality, and it 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 draws actually from sort of what we would call the hard sciences, right? Like the 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 laws and the physics, the mathematics. Um, and it takes away the sort of um, objective root and a, the deep societal trust that we have in that kind of knowing and knowledge, which immediately relates to what you're talking about right now with the liminal time. How does that work for, for you? Is that something that is consciously present in writing? eventually I think if I'm working on a piece long enough I'll start to realize that that's some of what's going on um, I at one point a few years ago it seemed to me that almost everything I undertook at some level ended up tackling time which is a mess I mean time is fine but we have linear brains time is not linear really uh, time and space <laughs> <laughs> the physics no, of yeah. time and space is like, is like magic in itself. Um, and here I am, the person who failed sciences, tackling, writing about time. Um, so it's not conscious, but it was the thing that helped me to realize that prose fiction is a time-based art as much as mm. um, any media that we play with time in our stories. Mm. And do you feel that um, when we have this linear time, there's we've 
already mentioned the Sankova. If I say it correct, I think you should Sankofa, say it. Sankova, I think, is, is not even a word in the language I speak, but we say it's Sankova over here. Okay. Uh, and it's um, it's an Adinkra sim symbol, much like this one. You're showing it's your a, tattoo? Yes. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a linear, I mean, a, a very abstract image of a bird looking back over its shoulder and it's holding an egg, which presumably it has just picked up. Uh, and the idea is that you have to take the past with you as you go into the present and the future, otherwise things are gonna, are gonna go wrong. Um, mm -hmm. So it's go back and get it, go back and get the thing that you have left. Take all of you along with you. Um, and that keeps coming up too. I mean, um, I forget who it was who said those who, forget the past you're doing to repeat it that idea is not new or confined to any one culture um can you say how how you do it um in terms of if ha having such a, embodying hybridity yourself uh, which of course is every human being etc etc but it's very poignant in your work or at least uh, it's legible in your work and I'm wondering also when you're teaching, maybe these things come up, but how multi-conscious can you be about your own backgrounds, about your own narratives that you carry within you? Um, when I put fingers to keyboard to start a story, I have to decide, even if I'm working with characters who are Anglophone, I have to decide what kind of English they're speaking. I've heard other writers say they never have to think about it. And I'm like, how can you not think about it? But then, of course, I'm from the Caribbean. I've lived in three diff different countries in the Caribbean. I've lived in Canada. I've lived in the US. Um, I'm aware of registers of speech that, that, that happen along um, uh, loosely along the class background. I have to decide what race or races my characters are. I have to decide what their gender expression is, what their sexuality is. That helps me figure out who they are, what their communities are, how they speak, how they embody. It can actually stop you sometimes because you're like, wait, <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know how this person talks. I don't know how they would say blah, blah, blah. Um, but I don't know how you don't do that. Mm. Um, I mean, I can see if you come from a fairly monolithic background, there's still all kinds of diversity in that that you can write in without ever having to think about how your characters speak or what they look like. You still kind of sort of need to think about their gender and their sexuality, I would think. But some people don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you never experience it as a sexuality because you're heterosexual, then yeah. Yeah, yeah. Does it never occur to you that you've left out a whole chunk of the population in there? So yes, it is conscious, mm. uh, mostly. Uh, and I do sometimes mess up my own biases show. Um, hopefully while they're still in draft. 
<laughs> and I can go back in and, and, and do some work there. Do but, you check that somehow? I guess so. Uh, I think of who's... I kind of sort of very loosely, it's not like I have a checklist, think of who's not in the story and whether that's valid and how I want it to be. I think of how I've represented the voices and the experiences that are more marginalized in the world. Um, I once wrote a whole novel and turned it into my editor before I realized I had filled a Caribbean nation with magical Negroes. <laughs> I'm like, of all the people to go and do that. And I know my editor is not going to catch it. So, <laughs> but but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had time to rewrite, thank God. Um, and that was partly my own class biases, I think, showing where I had, I had um, romanticized mm. uh, working class and farming class people in that context. So it, it happens. Yeah. And I think like when you say romanticized brings me back to something else when you said um, it can even stop you. And I think that those are the two markers maybe that people uh, that people use as an excuse to refrain from um, having more quote unquote complex characters where they would be like, well, if I have to think about it, it will stop me. And the other thing is that like this idea of fiction being a romanticization and having a sort of an entitlement to romanticization, right? Like, which is also how the novel came up and... Yes, how are you solving yes, that? Yes, Tell yes. us. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, like, you're making art, everything stops you. Is I mean, doesn't it? <laughs> I sort of think you can decide what you want to do, but make a decision. Don't just default. Mm. And we also hear, oh, but I can't represent that experience. I've never had that experience. That's an experience that's way more marginalized than mine. Um, and I honor that understanding. And yet, mm. make a conscious decision about whether or not you're going to wrestle with it from story to story, mm. um, rather than just a blanket Right now, the novel I've been trying to finish for over a decade <laughs> is uh, set in a Caribbean past that never existed. So I've created a whole new um, the, the power balance is very different than it was. Um, the history is a little bit different. So I'm having to create how people speak. Um, And some of that I'm just pulling from random stuff I know. Uh, I think, too, part of what you're talking about is world building, is that mm. the, rather than saying, no, this is 19th century, whenever, and this is what people wear, it's embodied in the language of the piece. Um, I have, uh, when I was writing, damn, when you start forgetting the names of your own novels, The Salt Roads, because that wasn't my title for it, but <laughs> when I was writing The Salt Roads, um, a lot of my characters were sex workers, um, and it was set in 4th century Alexandria in Egypt, 
18th century, Haiti and 19th century France, mostly Paris. I needed to know how they would speak. And they say that science fiction fantasy are always written in translation because you're translating a world that doesn't exist to us. So I needed to figure out how to try to represent the speech of fourth century Alexandrian uh, sex workers, but I'm doing it in 21st century English. I found this great lexicon called the Big Book of Filth. <laughs> it's actually not such a big book, <laughs> but it's chock full <laughs> of all kinds of dirty words and phrases in English and their etymologies, uh, when and where they came from. Uh, and so I had to um, try and imagine how to make them sound like this is their job so they have specialized language and it's not fussy language it's language that gets to the point how do i say that in english not speaking any kind of egyptian much less fourth century alexandrian egyptian um and I, one of the things i remember looking up was um, metaphors for beauty like how did they think about beauty particularly female beauty and one of things I found was that they would compare people to women to an ox, which sounds really not right from our perspective, but it's because oxen have these beautiful eyes that look like they're already wearing, you know, liner, and because Hera, the goddess Hera, is sometimes represented as an ox. So I'm like, okay, so I can't in my modern day English call a woman a cow and have people understand it as being beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, I ended up saying oxen-eyed as Hera. Well, an ox is a male cow, and well, whatever, but I, trying to convey the sensibility. How do you do research in oral histories? Because this one was a book, actually, but many of these, I mean, it also reminds me of queer vocabularies that are... Uh, being built right that that are that do not that have not been written down exactly because they need to escape the gaze of power yeah and because they, the power isn't necessarily there to put in books mm. Mm, i i'm a little chicken to do sort of direct research so i i'll look for for books and articles first but I will also look for people who are formal or informal experts who are willing to talk to me. So um, for the Egypt part of, of the Salt Roads, um, I approached uh, a curator at the Royal Ontario Museum who specialized in Egypt and, and we went out to lunch and um, uh, she was queer and quite happy to talk to me about sex and sexuality and, and um, uh, sex workers. So I found out a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise um or just going just putting putting it out there so there's two pages four pages of one issue of the house of whispers because it, it came out as a monthly and then is being collected into graphic novels um it was set in japan and not just japan but one of the islands off the coast of japan um that has the tradition of women pearl divers so I looked up some of that history, but then I needed words and phrases in Japanese that were correct 
as much as possible to them. So I approached a Japanese writer I know, who's a good friend, and she said, well, no, actually don't speak enough Japanese to do that, but I know somebody who does, and she referred me on. It's cool when, when you say you're writing a novel, all of a sudden people really want to help you. <laughs> so if they have knowledge that you need, they're very, very generous. I have a few questions in terms of um, writing or like how it affects writing. And you mentioned a little bit like having, for example, a polyamorous lifestyle, having sweeties. I was going to say all over, but I don't want to make it that. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the possibility is there. <laughs> That's, you know. And also, I mean... I can ask the simple question about embodiment. Well, I'm not sure if it's a simple one, but I can ask a question about embodiment and sexuality being in your writing and um, thinking about Delaney having sexuality in his writing and you talking about that. You're making a little sign to your heart. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, but maybe I can draw the question in with also polyamorous lifestyle or living a polyamorous life and how this if this affects your writing um at this stage i'm largely poly without portfolio so like i said it's more in the, in the possibility than in than in the actuality but it does affect my writing because again when i'm thinking along those axes of what my characters do can't assume they're straight and they can't assume they're monogamous. What happens if I don't assume that? What happens if I have all the possibilities that I can think of um, to draw on? Mm. And how do I write it? Do I write it as though I'm introducing it to a population that isn't familiar or to one that is? Or do I do, try to do a mix of both? Um, one of the delights of writing House of Whispers was that the main character, the, the deity Elzeli, traditionally in some some traditions of the religion has three husbands so i had fun with that completely normalized it she has three husbands they love each other <laughs> i decided they weren't the men probably weren't sexually involved but they're very intimate with each other they love and they care for each other they love and they care for her it's just it's what they do um, and I had to come up with terms that they would use to talk about each other because they're, they're, they're married. So I think sometimes I said co-husbands. I think sometimes I said husband-in-law. <laughs> and the joy of being able to put that on the page, have the artists and the editors mm. run with it, and then watch the readers either recognize what I'm doing or be caught by what I'm doing and have to think about it. Um, that was so much fun. When I first started writing and being published, for one thing, I was straight identified. Um, so there's a whole coming up process that had to happen both for me and, and, and how I represented my work on the page. And I come from a Caribbean family that's fairly conservative. So I had to find a way to do that separation that allowed me to put the work on the page mm. um, and found more support within my extended family than I thought I would. Uh, but I, I remember that terror. 
<laughs> and even when I was straight identified, wanted to have queer characters and wanted to have poly characters um, and wanted them to be black and Caribbean, which was, at that point was transgressive as hell. Mm. Um, and being really, really, really scary. Um, but every so often that a reading, someone would come up to me and say, I read this part. That's me too. <laughs> wow. like, oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it also makes me think about um, when you're saying it was difficult at the beginning, whether it's also about like having the expectation of a singular narrative as opposed to having this abundance of meaning. One person can hold many different, even religions maybe, yeah. together, um, different languages, different husbands. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is when you're representing particularly the no, not particularly your own community, but when you're representing a community that is already um, marginalized and, and dealing with multiple axes of, of, of bias and efforts to pretty much kill us, really, um, the world tends to see us as one thing. Mm. So I tend to get seen as black first. And I'm okay with that. But you got to know that black means everything I am. Um, I'm very okay with that, but it's it's broader. So I think sometimes in, it's how we expect to be represented, but also how we almost self-protectively sometimes think of ourselves. Um, there's this sort of idea that, that, that we you have to perform respectability and people will give it to you. They, they don't. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I remember arguments that would happen over Toronto Pride where the more yeah, outre elements <laughs> of the society, people were saying, well, you can't have them in the, in the, in the, on the parade because, you know, then the straights won't respect us. It's like, dude, the ones that respect you will respect you. The ones that don't, they're not going to do so in a hurry. So you might as well have. Mm. <laughs> no, <laughs> the naked people parading down the street. Please, please have the naked people parading yeah. down the street, <laughs> and the guys in chaps, and the, you know the women with whips. Like, please, um, don't cut off part of the community in an effort yeah. to appeal to the mainstream. It doesn't work. But the contextuality of that is so poignant I mean just thinking about being naked in pride um, in the Netherlands being naked is not the problem yeah the problem is if you're not rich and white or you don't pose on a boat that is uh, represented by the institution or the company that you work for oh, which yeah. buys a spot in the parade well we started to get that part, second part too. Mm. Where you know Toronto Dominion Bank has a float, you know, okay. Um, at least you get to see who at your bank is queer, but <laughs> but the police had a float, mm -hmm. and just last year, 
Black Lives Matter two years ago um, did a stage a protest at the parade um, and, and sort of browbeat the people who run Pride into canceling the police vote. And they tried to walk that back and say they'd been forced into it. Yes, because it wasn't going to happen otherwise. They had been forced into it. Um, yeah, it, it's funny, different writing across different expectations. I remember being rich and white. I remember being there on the sidelines for that particular Black Lives Matter protest and afterwards hearing two white gay men saying, well, I don't know what their problem is. Uh, the police have been very good to gays in Toronto. I'm like, you just heard yeah. 200 people tell you they have not. Mm-hmm. But what you mean is they've been good to white people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I recently had somebody ask whether I was interested in writing a particular character in a particular world, let's say. And this character is one that hasn't been featured often and, and, and who is black. And the editor said, I thought you could do some kind of Afrofuturist thing where they lead an army of special forces across the world. I'm like, so Afrofuturism is about trying to get away from y'all's military? <laughs> so could I do it some other way? And to the editor's credit, the response was, yes, of course. I don't have a good, you know, I, understanding of that nuance, so I will take your note and mm. you, you tell me what you want to write. That was a moment of having to walk around the block and take a few breaths. Because mm. uh, talking about my life and the life of people close to me, and to you, it might mean Black Panther. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. And yes, it does. I mean, it does, but that's reflecting something actually happening in the world. Yeah. Which leads me to my final question. I guess it's a futuristic question. Mm -hmm. If we end the world as we know it, mm -hmm. the ways that we currently understand the world, what would you wish that we would have left behind or that we would mm -hmm. have left um, or that we would have unlearned? Mm -hmm. um, an automatic fear and hatred of the other. Um, the idea of geographical boundaries. Um, some of the, the talk around COVID-19 has, people have seemed to sort of been assuming that uh, that they can keep it out at the border. It's like, you know, you realize it's airborne. <laughs> And one world, same air. Um, so that, the idea of um, geographical boundaries, the <sighs> assumption that the past was stupid, that people were less sophisticated and less able to mm. ask questions and think incisively. Mm. Poverty hunger. There's no reason for either of those things to exist in this world. We can end them in a month. If the will is there. The will is not there. 
Yeah, those would be a good start. <laughs> yeah, it would be a great fucking start. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Nalo Hopkinson. So each time I have a conversation with an international author, we also invite a maker in the Netherlands to respond to the conversation. And this time it was very obvious that we should invite Tirza Witt to respond. So Tirza Witt is an audio storyteller and she builds on the oral traditions of her Maroon Surinamese heritage which taught her the importance of multiplicity of voice and the way audio creates space for this. Tirza Witt also met Nalo Hopkinson when Nalo was in the Netherlands in the summer of 2019. Tirza has decided to respond with her story on the questions that Nalo and I share about nonlinear time. During recess, Ayo sits in the sandbox. It's his first week at Sandsbury Middle School, in the enormous campus that is shared with a kindergarten, primary, and high school overwhelms him. All around the playground, kids are running, screaming, and playing. Most of his new classmates hang around benches and swings. The square sandbox is deserted. Most kids his age don't play in the sand anymore. Only his muddy shoes look at home in the little dunes. Ayo huddles forward to continue drawing people in the sand. There's a man with a hat, a person in a dress, and a little girl with curly pigtails. Is that supposed to be Nia? A red-haired boy asks. He suddenly appears behind Ayo, pointing at the sand drawing. Ayo doesn't respond, but tries to turn his back towards the boy. He remembers seeing him in class and tries to recall his name. Charles? Don't you think it's a little early for crushes or are you a womanizer? He continues with a mocking African accent. It's nobody, Ayo stutters, and he starts drawing another figure with a big round head. Oh, I agree that Nia's a nobody, but come on, don't you think that one looks a little more like her anyway? He says as he puts his foot on Ayo's latest drawing. Just leave me alone, Ayo says. He stands up and turns around, and as he swings his arm, his hand accidentally smacks on Charles's shoulder. Oh, you're really trying to fight now? I can show you how we fight round here. Charles pulls back his arm to prepare for a punch. When he extends his arm, Ayo flinches, but doesn't feel anything. Nia stands between Ayo and Charles and grabs his fist. Before Charles can realize what's happening, she yanks his arm down, pulls it back, and presses his fist up behind his back. Ow! What are you doing? Charles cries out. I wanted to ask you just that, Nia answers, then pushes his arm up a little higher. Let me go, Nia, Charles squeaks, failing to hide his pain. All right. Nia pushes Charles forward. He stumbles but doesn't fall. Next time I'll... Yeah, yeah, yeah. See you, Charlie, Nia says with a big smile on her face as she waves him goodbye. 
Charles shakes his head and walks away. When Nia looks back at Ayo, he doesn't manage to conceal his staring. She smiles awkwardly and raises her eyebrows. Ayo doesn't say anything at first. He's not sure whether to be grateful or embarrassed. Thanks, he whispers under his breath. How did you... He pauses. I didn't even know you could hear us. Well, I guess it's easy to hear your own name, Nia answers quickly, trying to brush the issue off. Ayo looks down. His gaze wanders off and rests on the swings, behind the carousels, where Nia sat earlier reading a book. Something doesn't quite add up. Nia looks at the swings too, lost in thought. You're quick, Ayo concludes. I... I guess so, she agrees. Nia turns to Ayo, nods, and walks toward her book that still lay on the ground next to the swing. Ayo looks at his classmate more carefully than he had before. Of course, he had tried to draw her, but since he didn't want to be caught staring, he hadn't gotten much more detail than her pigtails that sit on top of her head like round sponges. Now he sees that Nia is quite tall and rather skinny, She wears square black glasses and a denim jacket over a yellow t-shirt. As she kneels down to pick up the book, the legs of her jeans lift a little, revealing her ashy ankles. Inside, Nia walks straight to the library. She rushes down a random aisle and sits down on the floor, her knees tucked in and her arms hugging around her. She buries her face into her legs. What? just happened. When Nia sat on the swing, she thought she heard her name amidst the yelling children's voices. She looked around and saw Charles standing over Ayo in the sandbox. Nia's a nobody, she heard Charles say. She jumped off the swing and started walking towards the sandbox. She had had it with Charles. Was he such a coward that he would spread rumors about her to the new kid? When she was a few feet away, she saw Ayo swing his arm into Charles's shoulder. Nia hadn't realized she'd been holding her breath all this time. Even though her anger management counselor told her to breathe slow but deliberate breaths, holding it just felt better. She had tried explaining to Mr. Jones that it made her feel more calm, allowing her to pause and take a little break from it all. He wouldn't buy it. As she approached Charles, she felt her surroundings become more sluggish. Around her, the screaming noises started to fade. Nia felt as if she were underwater. On the carousel sat two children with a look of excitement on their face. But the carousel wasn't spinning. She saw children with both legs suspended in the air, fixed in place. Others had their mouths wide open, but no sound came out. She blinked and realized everything was still. Nobody moved. Nobody made a sound. In front of her, she saw Charles, his arm pulled back, ready for a punch. In shock, Nia inhaled sharply, moved toward Charles, and intercepted his arm. But how had she been so quick? Nia wonders now. 
leaning her head on the rows of books behind her. She doesn't consider herself quick. She's always been bad at silly reaction time games, where a teacher would drop a ruler and she'd have to clap to catch it. Neither is she a particularly good runner, especially not in the middle of recess, with kids running around playing tag everywhere. Nia wasn't quick. It was something else. It had to be. She sighs and extends her legs onto the floor. Excuse me, a hushed voice says. Shouldn't you be in class? The short, chubby woman with a chart full of books approaches Nia. When Mrs. Williams sees the girl's startled face, her expression softens. She bends forwards and puts her hands on Nia's shoulders. Is everything all right, dear? Uh, yes, yes, Nia whispers as she picks up her book. I'm sorry, ma'am. I just lost track of time, she says and gets up. She nods apologetically and rushes out of the library. After spending the afternoon at the pool with Ayo and his brother Samuel, Nia is the first to be done changing. She rushes outside to continue reading her book. It's a fantasy novel, and she finally got her hands on the last part of the trilogy. Sitting on a bench, hunched over the pages, water drips from her hair onto the paper. Nia can't even be bothered that it's a library book. Nia can't even be bothered that it's a library book. The story is getting really intense, and she eagerly flips through the pages. After a while, Ayo and Samuel join her outside. Do you want to ride home from our mom? Ayo asks. No thanks, Nia answers, without looking up. Are you sure? Ayo asks as he sits down next to her on the bench. Our mom wouldn't mind, right, Samu? Samuel nods. He stands by the road looking to see if the car has arrived yet. Not really, I'm good, Nia repeats. I came by bike. Oh, really? Y'all bike around here? Ayo asks. I do, Nia says as she flips the page. Ayo nods as a car pulls up. Well, there's our ride, he says and jumps up. See you tomorrow, Nia. See ya, Nia says, and she briefly looks up. She waves as Ayo gets into the front seat of the car, next to a blonde, middle-aged woman. After reading for a couple more minutes, Nia gets up and walks to her bike like a zombie, her eyes still fixed on the page. She unlocks a black bike she got from her dad when she turned 12. He called it a granny bike. Nia never figured out why. When she hops on the bike, she places her book in front of her, resting against the crate that hangs in front of her handlebars. She slowly rides away, paced not quicker than a pedestrian. From time to time, her gaze shoots up, scans the environment, and moves back to the letters on the page. Traffic is quiet, as it usually is when she approaches her part of town, so Nia becomes more concerned with the action in her book. Nia almost drops her book when she hears the loud noise. She looks around to see where it came from. A voice shouts from a car to her right. The car is only inches away. Nia squeezes her eyes and her brakes. It's like she's in the pool. Floating in a little ball. No need to move, breathe, or do anything else just listening to the muddled sound 
in the dampened light. She doesn't want to open her eyes, fearing reality will sting her back like chlorine. She decides to do a little bit of her and a little bit of Mr. Jones. She lets her breath hold her in suspension as she counts to ten and opens her eyes. The large black SUV stopped inches away from the side of her bike. Nia can smell the burning asphalt rising up from the tires. The, the gray-haired passenger's knuckles are white as they press into the steering wheel. Wide eyes stare back at her, filled with anguish, so tense they don't blink. Nia does, as she realizes she has to get herself out of harm's way. She pushes her foot on the pedal of her bike to rush past the car. It barely moves. Nia lifts herself up from the saddle and puts all her weight into the pedal. It doesn't budge. She looks back up at the anxious man in his SUV. She can't wait for her bike. Sorry, Dad, she thinks to herself as she jumps off her bike. After a few wobbly steps, she crashes into a bush on the pavement. Spiky thorns pierce through the skin of her hands, and her knees are chafed and throbbing. Nia gasps. The sound of tires screeching, airbags inflating, and alarms wailing hit her all at once. When she looks up, the first thing she notices is her granny bike, crumpled up under the wheels of the SUV, smoke rising up from the car's hood. From the corners of her eyes, Nia can see her library book lying on the asphalt, a soft breeze flipping its pages. Nia looks down at her bleeding hands, stung by flowers, not metal. Nia wasn't quick. It was something else. It had to be. This was the first episode of the Asterisk Conversations, the Writers Unlimited podcast. The Asterisk, steady here in Dutch, signals intersections, crossings, and a refusal of a final form. The Asterisk Conversations is an initiative by me, host and writer Simon Simone van Sarlos, editor Ilonka Reinkjes, and Writers Unlimited. With thanks to the authors Nalo Hopkinson and Teresa Witt. Thank you, editors Michel Renardes and Jurgen Gario Unum. JG. Episode 2 of the Asterisk Conversations will be launched shortly and will be with Pamela Sneed, author of Funeral Diva. The episode will include a contribution by poet Jolene Phillips. The Asterisk. The Asterisk. The Asterisk. The Asterisk.